Health. And I call Daniel McCrossan to ask the first question. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the Minister for Health for being here today. Uh, question one, Minister. I thank the member for his question. Uh, the Department of Health does not have guidance on hernia mesh procedures. Uh, there is, however, a Chief Medical Officer's circular entitled The Use of Hernia Mesh, which was issued to health trusts and general practitioners on 30 July 2019. That circular notes that the use of mesh for hernia repair is a long-standing surgical procedure carried out worldwide and which has led to significant reduction in the number of patients suffering hernia recurrence and therefore a reduction in the number of those needing surgery. As such, it remains uh, an option for patients in Northern Ireland and their clinicians to consider in consultation when deciding upon a course of treatment, and I consider that as appropriate. Indeed, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence views mesh hernia repair as standard clinical practice and has been performed for a number of decades, the safety and efficacy of which is understood. Very regrettably, the July 2019 circular notes that there are reports of patients who have suffered disabling complications from the use of mesh for hernia repair, a number of whom felt that they were not fully informed regarding their condition, treatment options and possible complications that may arise. Harm that was further compounded by the fact that that was described as dismissive, uh, a professional response. And as such, the circular noted the importance of working in partnership with patients in order that good clinical decisions may be made and patients are able to decide on the course of their treatment from a fully informed position. I fully endorse the need for patients to be fully informed about the risks of treatment and non-treatment before any surgery takes place. I thank uh, the Minister for uh, that answer. And can I just say, first of all, uh, Minister, as a, a member of this House, as a colleague of you in this Assembly, you have my full support uh, as Health Minister. I believe you have been doing a very good job in very challenging circumstances. And from the SDLP side of this House, we offer your full support. And uh, I have to say I am no great fan of Van uh, at any time anyway. Minister, I know that you will be aware of the group uh, the Hernia Mesh Awareness NA has referenced. They have been campaigning for an end to hernia mesh procedures as a result of their own lived experiences. Can I ask what support your department is making available to those people adversely impacted by the procedure in itself? Um, can, I, can I start by thanking the member for his comments? Um, they are appreciated. And in response to, to his questions, patients who are experience problems following this type of surgery are advised to consult with their GP and, if necessary, seek referral to the Health and Social Care Trust, where their surgery was performed, to get appropriate care on treatment. Uh, for counselling and any support uh, aside from surgery, patients may be offered assistance from their GP or the appropriate multidisciplinary team or services within that trust. The Health and Social Care Board, the Public Health Agency, the Patient and Client Council and the Health and Social Care Trust assist patients through the provision of information on treatment options and services available. Patient pathways are designed um, to ensure that patients have access to the most appropriate treatment for their condition. Patients should be supported through the process with informed discussions with their clinician to ensure their preferences and any inherent risks are explored and understood. Um, Minister, um, I know that this is obviously an issue we've been speaking about for a number of years now in relation to the overall mesh implant scandal. And of course, it's not just um, hernia mesh, it's also vaginal mesh. And many, many men and women are living in great pain as a result of the mesh implants that have been inserted into their bodies. And while I accept that it's probably a smaller proportion of people who have had the hernia mesh inserted that are li living in that long-term pain, 
Um, can the Minister, and I know I have sent this through in a written question, I am yet to receive a response, can the Minister confirm when the mesh clinic um, at the, the Belfast Royal Victoria Hospital is due to reopen, and if there is any update on the Julia Cumberbatch um, report? I am not sure. I know that the hernia mesh is sort of separate to that, but that is something that is going to be need to looked at as well, where men can sort of avail of that treatment. I, I think the member I don't have a date as of yet when that treatment will start, but it is something that the Belfast Trust is, is working on. The member has uh, raised the Barnes Cumberledge uh, report. Uh, Barnes Cumberledge actually re- published her findings on the 8th of July, and as the member knows, that report investigated what had happened in respect of, of specifically two medications, hormone pregnancy tests, uh, and one device, and it was the pelvic mesh implants, which was used in surgical repair of pelvic pelvic organ prolapse and to manage stress, uh, urinary incontinence, uh, the use of which has been linked to crippling life-changing complications. Following that publication, I issued a statement uh, apologising to those who were affected, and a departmental working group was also established to consider the nine recommendations in the report and my department's uh, response to that. That work is moving forward, and I plan to provide a formal response to that report shortly. call Paula Bradshaw. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, Minister, I've been working with that group as well for many years, and I've always found it incredible how dismissive um, departmental officials have been of the pain that they live in, the constant pain they live in. I was very disappointed that there's no record kept of how many of them are living in pain. There is no alternative offered to them, and any of them that I've spoken to felt that they were coerced in that because there was no other alternative treatment. What are you doing to see about an alternative treatment for those people who don't want to go through a hernia mesh implant procedure? Thank you. Um, and I thank the member. And I, I'm disappointed that she says that my department officials have been described as dismissive. I think that was something that was actually noted in the Chief Medical Officer's circular of July 2019, which I, I mentioned uh, at the beginning. Uh, in regards for those support mechanisms, I will ask and I will say to the member to encourage them to engage with the patient client council, with their GPs, and if she has any specific uh, concerns or positions, I'm glad I would be welcome to, to meet with the member to discuss those as well. Call Jim Allister. Yes, um, just on this issue of the quantifying of the number of cases with hernia mesh problems, can you give us some indication of that? I know I've certainly had uh, a small number of constituents raise it with me. And likewise, as Mr. Bradshaw says, they all report a dismissive attitude towards their situation. But can you quantify how many people are making complaints about this issue? Um, what I will say to the member, I, I don't have a summary of the number of, of making, number making complaints. Uh, and I, I, it's impossible. I don't have the ability to say how many people have been adversely affected by hernia mesh surgery in Northern Ireland. Um, as with other surgery, complications can occur, and in the case of hernia mesh surgery, these complications may include chronic pain or debilitating pain. Uh, what we do know, according to the 2018 guidelines complied by the International Hernia Surge Group, is that worldwide more than 20 million patients undergo groin hernia repair annually. And according to the Hernia Surge Group, overall the incidence of clinical uh, significant chronic pain is in the region of 10 to 12 per cent. Uh, and debilitating chronic pain affect in normal daily activities or work ranges from 0.5 to 6 per cent. And as there are approximately 2,000 hernia mesh operations in Northern Ireland each year, this constitutes a substantial number of patients 
who may present with symptoms. And as I will say to the members, I said to the other members, if they are presenting with problems, please contact patient client council or their GP in regards to getting the best travel and the best the best direction of solution. And if the member has any individual uh, constituents, please write to me with them. Nicole Kelly. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. And if I too could express solidarity to the Health Minister Sorry. in the face of the recent abuse. Sorry, Dolores, I, I wanted you to come on to the next question. Oh, question two. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Speaker. I thank the member, and I can advise that the total number of people waiting for an occupational therapy appointment across all five health and social care trusts as of the 30th of April was 14,200. Of these, 7,948 people have very regrettably, very regrettably been waiting longer than the target of 13 weeks. I am acutely aware of the increase in frustration and challenges which are being experienced by individuals and their families on an ongoing basis while they wait for an appointment to see an occupational therapist. Unfortunately, as members will only be too well aware, this position is by no means unique to the occupational therapy service. Increased investment is necessary in order to deliver a service that is fit for purpose and can meet the ongoing challenges. Again, as is the case with many of our other health and social care services, budgetary pressures are a severe limiting factor. And I have placed on record my view that the budget for my department for the year ahead is extremely disappointing. We need sustained investment and multi-year budget settlements to support long-term investment in providing and scaling up our workforce. Declare an interest as a former occupational therapist, but um, Minister, those are horrendous figures, and that's only, of course, for the first appointment. It's not about the treatment, and the whole point of occupational therapy is, of course, rehabilitation and allowing people to live full, independent lives. So, um, I am also aware, um, Minister, that there's a sh- there are a number of people who have applied to train as occupational therapists, but I think there's only 40 places at our universities. Surely, we need to be investing in our universities as well in relation to the number of OT places. And I wonder, have you had any discussions, or do you intend to have, with the economy? Minister. For that point, uh, as she will be aware, my department annually commissions uh, undergraduate training places from Ulster University for six categories of AHPs, and the numbers commissioned in 2021 uh, included 55 occupational therapists. Uh, this actually represented a, a, an increase of 56 commissioned places uh, from. 245 in 2019-20 to 301 in 2021. An additional 10 undergraduate places for occupational therapy was considered for 21-22, funding for any proposed expansion of AHP undergraduate training programmes commissioned by my department will be required uh, on a recurrent multi-year basis. Unfortunately, the current budgetary pressures facing my department mean that there is no funding for any such expansion and that includes occupational therapy, and the need to expand this programme will be considered in future budget build exercises. Thank the Minister for his answer. Um, Minister, occupational therapy therapy will be one of the most uh, key areas of health that that constituents contact my office. I'm sure many here is the same. You have covered I suppose there in the answer, just but I wanted to just highlight as of December 2020, there were at least 120 occupational therapy staff vacancies. You gave an update there in terms of the training. Is there any other actions your department is doing to address this? 
And again, the member will be aware, and I think she highlights the point that recruitment, uh, retention, but also training. And you know, while we can ask for places, it takes a number of years before those professionals come out at the other end. Um, but in, in order to address the, the additional pressures there have been placed on the service as we actually emerge from this pandemic, my department has asked the Health and Social Care Board uh, to initiate work in respect of the assessment of people who continue to experience long-term health effects such as, as COVID-19 infection. And that work includes the development of cost of proposals for an assessment service, uh, which will include a range of professions, including occupational therapy, in line with NICE guidelines and the specification for the multidisciplinary assessment clinics recently established in England. Um, my department has already carried out a series of AHP workforce reviews, including occupational therapy, to ensure that the provision uh, of an AHP workforce capable of meeting current and future service demands. And these are living documents which are continually reviewed to take account of those additional requirements as needs arise, and that includes the impact that we will see from COVID-19. Alan Chambers. And I thank the Minister for his answers so far. Uh, waiting times across all areas of our health service are unacceptably long, and so I look forward to the Minister's upcoming announcement of the elective care framework. Is the Minister confident that all executive parties realise that in order to avoid ever letting the health service get into such a poor state again, the short-term thinking and the in-year budget cuts of times past are a totally unacceptable way to run what is our most important public service? And I, I thank the member for his point, and I think I've been on record as of, as is, I think every party in this House that the, a one-year budget for health is unsustainable, and that's why the need of, of recurrent funding, specifically for health, allows us to make uh, those long-term investments, not just in capital and in buildings, but also in our professionals as well, and that of our workforce, should it be training, uh, should it be recruitment and also retention. And that's why I think the, the specific point around this question highlights the need for that recurrent funding to really address and tackle the challenges that our health service face, but also the workload that our health professionals face as well. Next question, I call Martina Anderson. Question number three. Um, I, I thank the member for her, her question. Cross-border services and services provided on an all-island basis are in and of themselves not directly affected by the UK's exit from the EU. There are a number of service-level agreements and memorandums of understanding in place between the Health Service Executive and the Health and, service, health and Social Care Trusts and specific providers to deliver a wide range of services which are important to the people who use them. These range from the radiotherapy unit at Alton Galvin Hospital, which is advantageous because it makes provision of specialist services financially viable by sharing facilities to enable people from both jurisdictions to access care locally, thereby avoiding lengthy journeys to specialist centres elsewhere, to very local services such as out-of-hour services working together to allow patients to attend the closest centre when they are in need. The services that are already in place will continue and new services will be explored. And to support this engagement between my officials and the Department of Health and the Republic of Ireland are frequent and positive. A primary focus for both is to ensure that comprehensive cross-border health care arrangements benefiting citizens from both jurisdictions are not only maintained but actually further developed. And I too would like to give my solidarity to the Health Minister after those unacceptable comments that we heard 
uh, over the weekend. Minister, can I ask you in relation to the dire situation we're in uh, with regards to waiting lists? Because I'm conscious of what you said, but my understanding um, dealing with a number of constituents in Derry who have tried to avail of the EU cross-border reimbursement scheme for things like hip replacements and so on, um, that that no longer exists in the way that it did before. So could you give me some clarity on that? And if you're working with the Minister in the, in the South, Stephen Donnelly, to try to ensure that constituents across the North understand how to access, if it still exists, the EU cross-border uh, reimbursement schemes for things like hip replacements and so on. Um, and I thank the member. The Cross-Border Healthcare Directive actually enabled UK citizens to access healthcare in any EU country, and either the private or public sector, and to be reimbursed for this care abroad by their home country. And as of the end of the EU exit transition, the directive no longer applies to the UK. Transitional provisions have been made to ensure that if someone has applied to or used the CBHD before the end of transition, uh, reimbursement for treatments will be honoured for up to one year based on certain conditions. I have also asked my officials to look at the, the possibility of re-establishing a version of the Cross-Border Healthcare Directive uh, to the Republic of Ireland. Uh, the Republic of Ireland reimbursement scheme will set out a framework based on the Cross-Border Healthcare Directive and will allow patients to seek and pay for any treatment in the private sector uh, in Ireland and have the costs up to the cost of the treatment of the HSC in Northern Ireland reimbursed. The Republic of Ireland reimbursement scheme will be open to ordinary residents of Northern Ireland and managed by the Health and Social Care Board, and all treatments are subject to prior authorisation. Um, in regards to conversations, I am aware that Ireland has extended an administrative process to Irish patients uh, to use CBHD-like uh, processes to access care in the private sector in Northern Ireland, and that is a completely a matter for the Department of Health in the Republic of Ireland. Well, Jerry Carl. Minister for his answers. Uh, much has been made recently of regularly, regulatory divergence in borders in the Irish Sea, but there have been no problems or cries of betrayal from the benches opposite about exporting women who need abortions to England and Wales. Almost 400 travelled during the pandemic for healthcare. A disgraceful figure. Can the Minister provide details of his attempts to get executive sign-off for abortion services t since, he took up, uh, uh, since he took up post? Excuse me. And Minister, I do not think you are dangerous, but I think it is dangerous to force women to travel during a pandemic for healthcare. Um, I, I thank the member for, for a supplementary, although some way off uh, the, the original topic. Um, I, I will tell the member I once again submitted proposals to the Executive Ministers about this issue on the 19th of May. Um, my paper has of last week not yet been discussed by the Executive Committee. Uh, I am seeking consensus, as I'm, I am required under the Ministerial Code. Uh, while my department resumes the necessary planning work for commissioned abortion services under the 2020 regulations. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The, the Minister has been consistent in welcoming cooperation, be it from Ireland, Great Britain, or further afield, if it improves patient outcomes. Could the Minister update the House on the dual registration issue, please? Um, and again, I, I thank the, the member for his point. And in recognising that there is currently no legislative alternative, alternative to dual registration, uh, my department initiated discussions with the Irish Health Department and the Republic of Ireland Medical and Nursing Regulators uh, to identify a pragmatic approach to registration requirements. 
All parties to date have agreed on the need to avoid any disruption to delivery of care. And through discussions with the Irish Health Department, the Medical Council of Ireland and the Nursing and Midwifery Board of Ireland, an understanding has been reached that an effective, uh, effective grace period for individuals requiring dual registration applies while the necessary applications are being processed. It remains imperative that the Trusts initiate applications uh, which the regulators have undertaken to expedite for relevant employees within these timeframes. And doing so, there is no reason for any disruption to cross-border care. And moving on, I call Andrew Muir. For Mr. Speaker, and again, uh, I thank the member. Enhanced infection prevention and control measures have reduced patient throughput by approximately 60%. And as soon as these measures can be safely eased, uh, they will be. And the Chief Dental Officer continues to liaise with colleagues across the United Kingdom on this critical issue. And to ensure that the limited treatment capacity is targeted appropriately, guidance issued to all dentists recommends that patients are prioritised on the basis of need, and that any patient requiring emergency and urgent care is given the highest priority. A financial support scheme was established in April 2020 to support dental practices. The scheme provides an additional payment to eligible practitioners each month based on their average earnings in 2019-20. To date, the Department has been able to invest £57 million in relation to these issues since the pandemic started. Further, in February of this year, I established a £1.5 million revenue grant fund to help practices invest in measures like improved ventilation systems. This uh, is helping to build capacity uh, throughout the sector and addressing some of the patient throughput issues that have been unavoidable in recent times. Our short-term executive objective is to support uh, the increase in activity levels through continued financial support that incentivizes treatment of priority health service patients in a manner that is safe for both patients and staff. Looking forward, as part of the Department's wider rebuilding uh, services approach, the Department is currently engaging with the British Dental Association in relation to the continuation of the financial support scheme and support for PPE for the remainder of this financial year. Whilst we need to deal with these immediate, immediate issues, we also need to consider how dental services can be provided in a sustainable way going forward. And to that end, I have asked officials to establish a general dental services rebuilding stakeholder group, which will formalise engagement between the Department, the HSC Board and the British Dental Association, so that momentum around these issues continues. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Speaker, at the outset, I would like to offer my full support to the Minister after those disgraceful comments last week. Um, I, like many other people, have not had a dental checkup for well over a year since the pandemic arrived. And one of the things I understand is inhibiting the full return to dentistry services is the aerosol generating procedures and the regulations around that. Can the Minister give some more details on when he intends to review those procedures and the regulations associated with that to allow us to hopefully move towards a full resumption of dentistry services? Um, and I thank the member for, for the point. The, the guidance that we actually use is part of that that is agreed with the, the Chief Dental Officers across the United Kingdom. So it's not solely within, within my department. It's a UK-wide approach uh, that we actually take in regards to those recommendations. But further to that, as I said in my initial answer, that is why um, I established a £1.5 million revenue grant fund to help practices uh, actually invest uh, in measures like improved ventilation systems uh, to actually help rebuild that capacity throughout the sector. George Robinson. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. 
Mr. Speaker, could I ask the Minister, I heard your answer to the previous question, but could the Minister give an undertaking that equally GPs' practices should fully open again, where patients and constituents can fully access GP surgery and services? Um, and I thank the, the member for his point. I'm, I'm aware that the, the, the Royal College of GPs and the British Medical Association Committee of GPs have made a made comment on this recently, and again, I, I support uh, and applaud the work that they have done uh, and carried out through the pandemic of what has been a challenge and just not increase of referrals and attendances, but also as they get back to as many face-to-face -face appointments as they can. I am aware that there are some GP practices uh, across the country who are not providing as full a service as they may do, and I know that is a frustration that I share, and I know that's a frustration that also members of the Royal College of GPs and the British Medical Association Committee of GPs also share as well, because they are committed fully to resurfacing and seeing as many of their patients as they safely can. thank the Minister for his responses thus far in question, Andrew, for the question he's put in. You will be aware that the number of children, and particularly in areas of deprivation, have had teeth extracted as a result of poor diet uh, and nutrition um, has always been an issue. So I'd like to ask the Minister, as part of those deliberations around recovery, can he also look towards bringing an up-to-date oral health strategy, particularly for children and young people and disabled, and can he also put on the record my support to both the Minister and Data's family as well. Um, and again, I, I thank the member for, for her comments as well. Um, and I think the member is aware that our current Northern Ireland oral health strategy was published in 2007, but despite its age, the main oral health problems described in the document and acknowledged by the member uh, remains the same, and they remain largely valid today. Uh, the Young People's Oral Health Options Group uh, has been delayed until later this year, although some priority work has commenced. Uh, there is also an Older Adults Health Options Group, and that has been established and is chaired by the Acting Chief Dental Officer. The Oral Health Strategy for Older Adults is expected as well to be published this year. But the intention is for both those groups, the Young People's Oral Health Options Group and the Older Adults Health Options Group, is for both those groups to establish the oral health needs of children and older adults in Northern Ireland mm -hmm. and review the evidence base to determine which uh, preventative interventions are likely to be most effective and um, providing value for money as well. I call Carol Boylan. I thank the member for his question. Um, as he will be aware that my department has undertaken substantial work uh, to complete a draft organ and tissue donation deemed consent bill, and that the timing for its introduction to the Assembly is now at a critical stage. I wrote to ministerial colleagues on the 12th of April and again on the 1st of June to seek formal executive agreement to introduce the draft bill at the earliest opportunity. Individual members ha ministers have responded to me, most ref mostly reflecting the strong support from the Northern Ireland public to my department's recent public consultation. However, as my revised paper has not yet been discussed uh, and voted on within the Executive Committee, it has not progressed to the Assembly. I therefore wrote last week to the First Minister and Deputy First Minister under the urgent decisions procedure of the Ministerial Code to ensure that the Bill is able to proceed 
to first and second readings within the remaining weeks of the current term. My answer then provides four different options to this uh, question. I have option one, where no decision has been taken by the First and Deputy First Minister. Option two, that it had been declined by the First and Deputy First Minister. Option three was that it had been agreed by the First and Deputy First Minister. Unfortunately for the member, I do not have an option as to what happens in the absence of a First and Deputy First Minister to this bill. Could I thank the Minister for his answer? And could I also lend my support to the Minister in light of the comedy over the weekend? Uh, Minister, I appreciate your answer, but would you commit then to working with the departments in relation to trying to introduce it? You know that the um, Organ Donation Week is scheduled for September, and, and people, this, this bill is badly needed. So I'm sure we would support the Minister in, in working with others to try and introduce this bill by September. Um, and I thank the member, and as I think I've, I've demonstrated in the answer, first of all, I need to get it through the Executive Committee. So I would ask for support of all members and all ministers in this House to enable me to do that as soon as the Executive is able to meet and move forward with that. Call Justin McNulty. Minister, the heart is one of our vital organs. Just over 17 years ago, my former Queen's GA teammate went to bed and didn't wake up. His mother spoke very passionately. His mother, Bridget, spoke very passionately this morning on Good Morning Ulster around the importance of providing AEDs for sports clubs and for CPR training. Christian Eriksson had a very visible cardiac arrest, very public cardiac arrest the weekend there, and only for the swift actions of his teammates and emergency services, he probably would have died. How important does the Minister believe it is that CPR training is fulfilled in our schools and that AEDs are made available for clubs, sports clubs and organisations? Um, I, I thank the member for, for his comments and, uh, of course, for the disturbing, disturbing scenes that were, were viewed over the weekend. In regards for CPR training in schools, it is something that is, is, is without my uh, department's responsibility, but I am aware that the member's party, uh, member's colleague, party colleague has a private member's bill on the statute actually to induce CPR training or introduce CPR training uh, within our, our education sector, one that I would be fully supportive of. And for those, uh, those scenes that we have also seen where people have taken to actually vandalise uh, some of the, 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 the resuscitation equipment that is placed publicly, I would say to them, you are a shame and a disgrace because we have seen now very clearly on uh, over the weekend how vital those pieces of equipment are. They are life-saving and should be treated as such. And that ends the period for a list of questions. We now move on to topical questions for 15 minutes. And I, I call Kelly Armstrong. Just made it. Thank you, Speaker. Um, Minister, could I ask for an update on the timings of the special recognition payment for health and social care staff and when they will be seeing the money in their pay packet or bank accounts? Um, I, I thank the member for her question in regards to, to the payment uh, within the health and social care sector, within our own trust. They, they should receive those payments in their bank account by July. The member will be aware that one of the, one of the asks that was made to me was to make them uh, not subject to, tax, uh, to tax are actually social benefits allowances. So one of the things that we did to do that was with support from my executive colleagues, we increased the value of the payment. But what we also did as well was allow those members the option to defer the payment 
over a number of months rather than receiving it as a lump sum payment, which had, may have had uh, adverse impacts on some social security payments. So that's why it has taken that little bit longer, so we were able to put those uh, two supporting measures actually in place. And thank you very much, Minister. And just carrying on on the theme of payment for health and social care staff, Unison's campaign calls for an immediate £2,000 pay rise. Um, have you been engaging with the executive colleagues to advance this? And have you been able to talk about this with the UK Treasury around the issue of appropriate levels of pay to ensure the retention of staff? Um, I thank the member. Um, she may not be aware. I actually had a, a meeting with some Unison representatives uh, on Friday in the Western Trust, and they put this specific point to me. Uh, we are, I suppose, mandated to look first of all to the recommendation that comes out of the independent review body, which we're led to be, uh, we're led, uh, to be aware will do will, will report at the end of this month. Um, and at that point, we, we, we will take cognizance of, of their recommendations, but also in regards to what settlement then comes uh, from Barnet consequentials for that same decision being made across the rest of the United Kingdom as well, because we are depending not just on the recommendation but also the additional funding, because the member will know that my budgets are already strained and stressed for that. Nicole Mervyn, story. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and can I assure the minister? that I do not concur with the comments that were made at the weekend, and I want him to be assured that they in no way are a reflection of what I think of him uh, as a colleague, and also for the way in which he has uh, very ably uh, chartered a course through what has been for us all a very difficult time. The, the Minister will be aware of the proposal to close for a temporary period the Robinson Memorial Hospital. That is to facilitate works that are going to be carried out uh, until hopefully completed in October. Can the Minister give an assurance that he will work along with the Northern Trust to ensure that any disruption that comes as a result of the closure is minimised and that the patient experience that currently is the case with patients in the Robinson is maintained to the highest possible standard? Um, first of all, can I thank the member for his his sincere comments of support. As I, I, I welcome that as a, a constituency colleague as well. Um, in regards to the Robinson Hospital, I, I will work with, with the Northern Trust. I'll get the member an update as to the prescribed uh, works on the time frame and to ensure that there is little disruption as possible to those patients who are not just being treated in, in the Robinson, but also who may have been sent to the Robinson for that re recuperation as well. Because it is vital, as the member does know, that I have said in the past that I need every square foot of our health estate at this minute in time, and that is why the Robinson plays a very vital and uh, important part of that estate. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And, uh, I do welcome the comments from the Minister, in particular in relation to the importance that the Robinson and other facilities such as Dalriada in our Northampton constituency plays in terms of the delivery of health care. Will he ensure that in terms of the plans that are being made, in terms of the overall provision of acute care in Northern Ireland, and he has some challenges in relation to that, but that Robinson, Dalriada and other cottage-type hospitals will play an important role and will be there for the future for our constituents. And I thank the member, you know, and I, I'll repeat it to him, as I, I've said many times in this House. I need every square foot of estate that we currently have, and that's why the investment has been made 
uh, in the Robinson to increase the provision uh, that's actually in and improve the condition uh, that's in it as well, because it is vital that we not just, just, just utilise our estate, but we actually utilise our workforce to the best ability. Uh, and I do hope that I will have the member's support when I come forward with what we need to do in regards to uh, elective care and how we change the structure and look at what we can do differently in Northern Ireland to have a patient, better patient experience and actually shorten our waiting lists as well. I call Claire Bailey. Thank you, Speaker. Um, Minister, I'm sure it was welcome the fact that you got a speedy and personal apology after the ridiculous comments that were made about you um, recently. And I want to go back to the issue that was raised by Jerry Carroll and wonder, Minister, do you think or will you commit to offering an apology to the 371 women who have been forced to travel to England for abortion services during the pandemic? I don't want to conflate the the two issues, uh, or bring the two issues together, because um, I, I received a, a, an apology of sorts on Saturday afternoon, um, so it was, it was far from speedy in regards to other public statements that were made. In regards to the, the delivery of abortion services, as I said to an earlier answer, um, I am seeking consensus, uh, as I am required under the Ministerial Code. And while my department resumes the necessary planning works for commissioned abortion services under the 2020 regulations, I have asked executive colleagues for a decision on that. Uh, the reason I am proposing uh, that is that when I brought forward similar proposals in April and May of last year, I wanted to reduce the health risk for any woman or girl in Northern Ireland needing to travel to England um, to access services, or worse, to turn to unsafe and unregulated services while work on a commission service is progressed by my department. Supplementary, Claire Bailey. Thank you, Speaker. Um, Minister, this morning I received um, a written response to a question that I had asked you about the regulation of um, Stanton Healthcare in Belfast, and um, the response was basically that they're not regulated. Um, now, on their website, they say that the services that they offer um, includes counselling, pregnancy testing, STI testing, post-abortion care, ultrasound referrals, and many other things. If this is not being regulated and we don't know what's being offered, do you think that that is dangerous and why is that not being regulated? Um, and again, I thank the member for her answer. And if I do recall the written answer that she does, did receive the, this morning, and she is referring to, that was the RQIA's assessment um, of the, the, this Stanton Healthcare that she actually refers to. So I have to take my guidance from the RQIA, who are our regulatory and quality inspectorate, uh, if they say that that's not a serv uh, not a uh, an establishment that is within their scope uh, to inspect. I have to take them at their word. I'll ask them again in back of the member's question today to, to reassess that assessment, but that was the initial response that I was provided for the member's initial written question. Trevor Lund is not in his place, and question five has been withdrawn. They call Pat Catnick. Thank you, Minister, for your answer so far. Minister, in light of where we are and the threat to these institutions of collapse, has your department made an assessment of where we are or where we're going without you in place in order to follow through on your plans? I, th I thank the member for, for, for the point that he has raised, because it is one of concern. Um, we did see what happened when this place collapsed 
the last time round we saw our, our waiting list spiral uh, due to not their min a minister not being in place to take the decisions that we needed to, but also in regards for a finance minister not being in place to, to make any changes to the budget uh, provision to the Department of Health, which was necessary at that point in time. So why I can set direction, why I can make statements without a functioning executive, our health service is under extreme pressure and will be under threat until we get an executive up and running and functioning again. Supplementary, Paul uh, Thank you, Minister. And, uh, uh, I realise how difficult it is in order to make those big decisions without, without yourself in place. Minister, I'm looking at Lagan Valley Hospital and the, the great work which has been done there and your commitment that no building will be closed. And I know the money that has been spent there for day procedure. I'm going back to the question which I raised with you before. Parking is an issue, Minister, and if there's anything that your department can do in order to alleviate the parking around the Lagan Valley Hospital, it would be much appreciated. And again, I know that the member has raised that in the past, and I said I would get back to him in writing. I'll ask the trust to actually engage with the member on that issue uh, in regards to parking, because I know it is a strain and a stress. As we want to develop uh, our services and increase the service that the Lagan Valley Hospital can actually provide as a, as a day procedure unit, it is getting great reviews. It is doing larger numbers uh, than, than we hope, but it can do more. But we need to make sure that all those ancillary challenges are also addressed as well. Mr. Speaker, and thank the Minister for his answer so far. Minister, today marks the beginning of Loneliness Awareness Week. And I would ask you, Minister, um, I'm sure you're aware that poor health can trigger loneliness, but also loneliness can trigger poor health. And I would therefore ask the Minister if he would consider what role his department has in capturing data in terms of how many people are experiencing loneliness in this place. Um, and again, we, and I think the department is aware um, of the challenges that were, ex I suppose, expounded uh, during the, the pandemic when loneliness became an endemic problem across Northern Ireland when we were receiving you know, reports from community pharmacists who went out to deliver uh, a medication and, and were, were there for half an hour because that was the only uh, personal interaction that they had seen. So we were able to, they were, the community pharmacy was able to provide that additional service uh, that was welcomed as well. And now we're looking at through our mental health supports that were given to community pharmacy. But what the member acknowledges in regards to loneliness, it is a challenge. Because even looking back to some of the, the recent NISRA statistical reports, we often take loneliness as being something that is assigned or specific to people living in remote areas up long country lanes. But what I was actually shown was the description of just even in concentrated urban towns, villages, that people living in the middle of communities are lonely as well. And it's one of the things I think we need to see that greater outreach among communities. We need to support that engagement with your neighbours, with those who are around you as well. And it's something that my department is keen to be involved in, but it is a cross-departmental uh, piece of work that we need to do in regards to how we interact. Uh, with communities, as well as justice, as well as education, to make sure there is a holistic executive approach, and that's why it's important that we have a functioning executive. Bradley. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I take the, the minister's point. And um, the minister will also be aware that there has been an all-party group set up 
on loneliness and preventing loneliness. And there has been, I have to say, widespread support across all parties in this chamber uh, for that APG. Would the, the Minister go on record today to concur that this place needs a strategy, a loneliness strategy, that will bring us to, in line with all other regions? I, I, I will support, and if my department can play an active role in developing a strategy, but one of the things I would say to the member, not just do we need a strategy, we need to see actions, because one of the things that I am one, all too aware uh, of the number of strategies that this place has, I, I, I concur with her, we need another strategy, but we also need to see it been delivered as well, because of the specific challenge that the member is, is raising as well, and how those early interactions in regards to especially the challenges of, of mental health, if we can prevent uh, that diagnosis, that uh, problem being exacerbated by engagement, by talking to people, you know, even some of our good morning phone call lines, things like that. You know, there's, a, there's a plethora of support services out there that this place needs to be funding, and if that needs to be pulled together in a strategy, then, then so be it. But I'd rather see some action rather than another strategy in its own. We call Karen Mullen, and you're not likely to get a supplementary. Minister, I want to thank you for coming to Elton McGalvin in May and meeting me with myself and Tamsin White and others in relation to detox and addiction services. Minister, will you commit to carrying out a full review on the addiction services in Derry in the North West and, and a particular focus around females uh, with addictions? And again, you know, and I thank the member for, for setting up that meeting with Tamsin. She has been in contact with me again, as I'm sure the member will be aware. Um, she's a fantastic advocate. That day we met, you know, I, I said that to her, uh, in regards to the passion that she has for making sure that those addiction services and emergency crisis services are in place, uh, especially in the, in the city as well. The member may not be aware, I, I did visit a number of mental health facilities uh, in the Western Trust uh, on Friday, uh, the ASHA Centre being one of them, to see the work that they are actually doing and providing, and I think their work is to be commended, but it's also to be enhanced and supported as well as to what is a regional facility. The time is up, members. Could the members please take a raise for a moment or two?